0: Hi everyone, I think we're going to get started. Um, My name is Amy Defabaugh and this is the uh, Career Services for Non-Academic Careers uh, for the Applied Religious Studies Committee. There's a couple things I just want to point out. Um, Number one, we are recording this session so you'll be able to listen to it afterwards on um, the AAR podcast. Um, We also, for the Applied Religious Studies Committee, um, we have a couple more things happening. Um, One right after this at 3:30 um, and there's a sheet up here that you can see everything. And also if you want to be on a mailing list for any updates on sessions next year, anything that we have going on, um, feel free to sign in at the end of the day or at I'm the end of the session. I'm yes. the one at 3:30. Oh, <laughs> Yes. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that oh, webinar. Yeah. No. Thank you. <laughs> um, So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce each of the panelists um, and myself, um, and then they're each gonna talk and we'll sort of have a conversation for about an hour, and then we'll open it up and leave about another hour, uh, 45 minutes to an hour for Q and A. Since we are recording, it would be great if you could come up to the microphone to ask the question, um, and I guess we'll just get started. Okay, so my panelists. Jenny to my um, left Jenny Wicheter is the minister of prophetic formation and founder of Jupiter formation, an ecumenical emergent ministry uh, with the mission of prophetically reimagining the church. She is an interdisciplinary entrepreneur, public scholar, community organizer and theologian committed to social justice. Jenny previously served as the faculty director of the Office of Professional Formation and Term Assistant Professor of Religion and Public Public Life at ILIF um, School of Theology, um, and and she was the Director of Service Learning. Uh, She earned her PhD in Religious religious and Theological Studies um, at ILIF School of Theology in the University of Denver, and is an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ. Um, Next to her is Sarah Pearson, is the content lead for the new career exploration platform, Imagine PhD. She is also the co-founder and director of new initiatives at the Atlanta Science Festival. She has a PhD in English Literature from Emory University. Um, Next to her is Karen Kelsky, Kelsky. Um, She is the founder and president of The Professor is In, which provides advice and consulting services on the academic job job search and all elements of the academic and post-academic career. Karen is a former tenure professor and department head with 15 years of experience. Her PhD is in cultural anthropology. And then finally um, is Emily Swafford. She is the Director of Academic and Professional Affairs of the American Historical Association. She directs several grant grant funded projects, including the AHA's Career Diversity for Historians and History uh, Gateway Initiatives. She earned her PhD in 20th, 20th Century US History at the University of Chicago. And again, my name is Amy Defebaugh. I'm the Associate Director of Academic Affairs for the College of Liberal Arts at Temple University. In my role, I create and implement academic and community engagement programming, including conferences, workshops, as well as um, all the ceremonial events at the college, so like graduations and baccalaureates. Um, And in my role, I also created and implemented the Liberal Arts Graduate Student Professional Development Series, which we provide programming um, to explore career diversity. I just defended my dissertation at the end of August, thank you, thank you, Um, on the death and dying of companion animals, so which is not what we're talking about at all today. Um, And during the time I was writing my dissertation, I was working full time um, in my current position. So to get started, what I would like to do um, is ha- sort of go down the line and have each of you talk about what inspired you to come to this work um, in exploring career diversity, and just to share anything about your background that you might want to share with us.
1: Hello, I started my career in nonprofit work, working for affordable housing and homelessness nonprofits, and. I sort of fell into higher ed um, because I was really interested in the community engaged aspect of research and public scholarship um, and civic development um, for students, faculty, staff alike. And then I fell in love with teaching, you know, I got one of those jobs where you have to teach on the side, that you're not a professor, um, you're a staff. So I did that and I fell in love with teaching and then eventually wound up in a professor position. But through a tenure career in higher ed, I was always doing community-engaged work, um, no matter what I was doing. In the last five, I was at I Love School of Theology, in the running the Department of Professional Formation, which oversees internships, uh, clinical pastoral education, for those of you who are familiar with chaplaincy, um, people that do clinical-based chaplaincy. Uh, in all of our community partnerships, working with nonprofits, local, local... Um, churches or places of worship, denominational leaders, and with students. So I learned early on in higher ed that my value is determined uh, really by students' input and not the other structures <laughs> in higher ed. Um, and so I would talk to students and often have discernment conversations with them as they were figuring out what their career and vocation was going to be. And Over the last five years there's been a huge shift towards more entrepreneurial, justice focused and inclusive types of work in ministry, specifically in a theological school context. So students are being called to do very different work than traditional religious leadership or in the Christian tradition we might call pulpit ministry. Someone that shows up on Sundays, does pastoral care during the week. They're really building entire uh, new ways of being in the world in really good ways. Um, and unfortunately, between higher ed and d- those denominations that would like ordain them, right, these kind of rule keepers and power bodies, we're not oriented to really support people doing new things like that, and that was always a frustration. So it's a long story to get where, how I, where I am now, but right now I'm the founder of a new ministry, nonprofit called Juniper Formation. Those of you that uh, study the Hebrew text at all, Juniper's coming from the story of Elijah where he went and took respite under a juniper tree in the desert and said, God, kill me, Uh, which is where a lot of our churches and clergy are right now, metaphorically and literally, in terms of not knowing how to lead in the times that we're in right now, in the context they're in. And of course, God said, ha ha, no, but here's some food, here's some drink, rest, you need courage and you need strength because I'm going to set you to do even more prophetic work in the world. So the mission of Juniper Formation is to prophetically reimagine the church and to do so in community and relationship to our communities around us, uh, to our interfaith partners, and to actually live out what we're called to do um, for my tradition in the gospel, to live out justice, uh, see kindness, love one another, love our neighbors, our immigrant. Uh, refugee, all of, all of the things that you don't hear Christians doing on like the news, those things. <laughs> so the work is developing cohorts, incubators for people that are called to this new type of entrepreneurial ministry uh, as well as working with local congregations that are declining uh, or closing to help them reimagine their ministry as being more community oriented. Um.
2: Again, I'm Sarah Peterson, um, and I am here representing Imagine PhD, which is a career exploration um, tool that is free and online. Um, I got my, finished my PhD um, in English um, and have the story that is the story of many people who do this kind of work, which is I found myself pregnant, commuting from Atlanta to Orlando, Florida in the middle of... Um, from Monday, going on Monday, coming home on Thursday, so that I could take a visiting position that paid me benefits, which cost, which made more, so I made more money in the commuting to Orlando than I made being an adjunct in the city in which I lived. And I was, had morning sickness, as was in airport bathrooms, and I thought, this is not a life that a person can sustain. Um, Perhaps that's not everybody's story, but some version of horror is is in the story of many people who have taken up um, this career professional professional development work um, to try to create culture change um, that uh, doesn't leave people making choices that have them asking such questions about how they got there. Um, So I moved into higher ed administration. Um, I took a job, which was the sort of First job I could get, which was in a chemistry department, um, which was felt strange, um, but exciting to learn about a different part of the university, um, and started doing a lot of training and mentoring of, of undergraduates and graduate students, and a lot of work just trying to help empower them to take some control over their training, um, and, and figuring out what avenues there were for them to get. Um, a little bit more control um, and have a little bit more of a voice in what their training looked like. Um, And then I moved over to the graduate school and worked in the dean's office um, at Emory University, which is where I also got my degree. I thought i mentioned that, but I didn't, sorry. Um, And I started their professional development program. So I worked in the dean's office there for about three and a half years, um, creating a robust professional development program for all PhD students. Um, and a small number of non-master's degree students, um, non-professional master's degree students. Um, And as part of that job, I became involved in the professional organization that um, a lot of staff who work in this field of um, career and professional development for PhDs and postdocs belong to, which is called the Graduate Career Consortium. Um, And as part of that professional organization, um, I got involved in this Imagine PhD project Um, which was inspired by um, another tool that exists called MyIDP, which was created for PhDs um, in the biomedical sciences and had been taken up and was really successful because um, the NIH decided that it was a really important um, thing for all people who were on NIH grants to do some kind of self-assessment and individual development planning. Um, so they required all PIs uh, who had graduate students or postdocs on their grants to participate in and sort of um, use this tool, which which allows them to self-assess their skills, values, and interests, and then to think a little bit about how to put the information from those assessments into action over the course of their training. Um, and so a lot of the... Uh, My colleagues um, sort of said, well, if this has been so successful in the biomedical sciences, could we create one for um, people in the humanities and social sciences? Um, And sort of so launched a kind of two-year fundraising and content development project to create this online tool um, that launched um, last October. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about the tool as our as the conversation sort of begs for that today and then I'll do a whole presentation tomorrow I'm um, going through the tool. Um, I think that's all I have to say. okay,
3: thanks. All right. <clears throat> I'm Karen Kelski of The Professor Is In and um, I started um, my career as an assistant professor and then a tenured associate professor and then a department head at University of Oregon and University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the fields of anthropology and East Asian languages and cultures. And um, for a variety of reasons um, that span both personal and professional, I became very, very unhappy and dissatisfied in um, my position at Illinois and I started trying to imagine a route out. But actually, um, the origins of the professors in began with my own job search in 1996 when I bombed spectacularly in my first year and couldn't quite believe the disconnect between my graduate training and my, my job search efforts and had this absolute stunning wake-up call and the scales falling from my eyes that everything I'd been taught in grad school had absolute, like almost no relationship whatsoever to what was required of the academic job market. So I did a self-study uh, really for about a year and went back on the market and that's how I got my first job, but I, but I became very politicized um, at that point, and the, the instantly I led a careers workshop for my own peers at University of Hawaii, which is where my PhD was from, for my, co- my fellow graduate students, before I even moved to take my first job at Oregon. And then from every year onward, I would grab every graduate student I could get my hands on and force professionalization down their throat, <laughs> usually totally unwillingly, especially back then, which was a very different world, when this kind of thing just didn't exist. and. Um, and the mythology of the ivory tower was absolutely unchallenged but um, so when I decided to leave Illinois um, and uh, I had an idea that this was a real passion of mine and that there was it's absolutely enormous need even in um, uh, 2009 uh, even even from 1996 to 2009 the same problems existed they were worse the grad students were getting no better training to deal with the job market, and the stakes of that were higher and higher because of the level of grad student debt that people were accruing, um, and of course, the skyrocketing level of adjunctification. So I started the professors in, and um, and after about three years of doing that, we branched out into post-academic advising, which felt absolutely uh, ethically uh, essential because, Um, In a world where 75% of, approximately 75% of university instructors are non-tenure track and only 25% are tenure line or tenured, it's the tenure track that is the alt career. Non-tenure track is the norm and so anybody who is doing professional advising for PhDs should be 75% focused on stuff that's not tenure track and so I, um, so, I, so I branched out with that and I do some of that consulting myself but I also have a bunch of, uh, a team of people who have successfully made the transition out into a variety of fields and they do consulting and co- coaching basically as well. So, and that's the, where we are right now but it feels very urgent to me. No matter who invites me, I speak all over the world, no, and, and, and I'm 95% of the time, I'm invited to speak about the tenure track job mark, job search. And I force everybody to listen to the spiel um, in the beginning, that, that for every audience I speak to, the, it is the minority of people who are going to be getting that tenure track job, and everybody needs to confront that. Still somewhat an unwelcome message.
4: <laughs>
5: On a very cheerful note, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, known <laughs> for that. <laughs> I, I am sometimes also a harbinger of doom. Uh, Amy, I have a question for yes. you. Uh, do you want me to speak more about my personal path to this job, or more how the HA got involved in this kind of work? Is did Maybe would that fit later? Pers- okay. Start
0: with your personal, and then we'll go to the HA. Yeah.
5: I am here, of course, representing the American Historical Association, so sometimes I am speaking institutionally, and sometimes I'm speaking personally. So I'll start. I'll start with Thanks the with the <laughs> personal story, um, which is. I also, uh, I guess I can narrate it, it pretty, pretty briefly. I, ha- I can remember the moment that it happened in graduate school where I was at a conference, it was in New Orleans, it was actually wonderful, because New Orleans is wonderful, and I was having coffee with somebody, with a professor who was in my field, and, uh, and we were, we were you know, chatting about our work, and he said, well, you know, Emily, what are, what are you doing? I, I was about, at that point, I was two years from graduating, but I didn't know exactly how far I was from graduating at that point because you never really know, right? You're just sort of like always prepared to jump off at any moment, right, if there's a, a boat to jump into. Um, and, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm planning to go on the market this fall. And I meant, of course, the academic job market, but I said the market as if it was the only one. And I'm applying to, fel- you know, fellowships and postdocs. And if that doesn't work, then I guess, you know, there I'll, maybe I'll look for some adjuncts. I was in Chicago, so I was like, there's some schools there. I know people do this, and I'm sort of doing this spiel. And he looks at me and he goes, Emily, what do you want to do? And he said it actually sort of flippantly, you know? And I just sort of sat there and I go, Nobody's ever asked me that you know and I remember it sort of like reverberating and thinking what a great question um, and and I've, I've since circled back to him and told him this and he's like, I had no idea you know that it was such a moment for you um, so so that was the first moment when I started to think what what do I want my life to look like and to sort of reinsert, um, what historians call, and I imagine other humanists too, agency back into my own story, right? Like I get to choose, I get to be in control. Um, and that was coupled with, I did I did go on the academic job market, I did apply to jobs, I did look more broadly, and several more moments where I can sort of see you know, my path coming together. One, I would get rejected from jobs, and I would feel relief, and I was like, well that's interesting, we should sit with that for a little bit you know, what, and what was giving me the sense of relief, and it was, and I loved teaching, I love research, I, I really wanted to be a faculty member, but I would say, you know but I didn't really want to move there. I didn't really want to teach that class, you know, and I started to realize things about myself, and I was like, okay, that's good to know. Um, and then I had a, someone on my committee sent me a job in the Department of Defense, uh, his, historians, they, the federal government hires a lot of historians, and said, I know this isn't what you want to do, but you know it, it looks sort of interesting. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's paying $75,000 a year. Like, I want that job. So, so I applied for it, didn't get it, um, and found myself with a, with a postdoc, actually, in Washington, DC. I'm a historian of the US military. It made sense to me to, to start there. My family's on the East Coast. So I said, OK, this is a place where I can start my life. And then it turned out that the AHA was hiring. And they wanted someone who had thought a lot about teaching, which I had done in graduate school. I had gone to the Center of Teaching and Learning and I and I'd thought about that because that, that was what I did. I did enjoy teaching. Um, they wanted someone who had a little bit of outside experience and I had worked in the library development office during graduate school because my funding wasn't great. Not because I loved the library development office, right? But I needed to pay the bills. And they wanted someone to lead up this AHA Career Diversity Initiative that, had, that they had just gotten a big grant to um, to coordinate and they needed someone to learn about it and then lead it. And I was like, well, this is an issue that I care a lot about, so I'm really interested in that as well. And that was about four years ago, four and a half years ago almost. And that's how I am here today. And if I think about what I do now, and I think back to when I started to think, what is your your dream job? What would you love to do? This checks almost all the boxes and I had no idea that it existed in graduate school. It was not even in my Everyone here has talked about learning to imagine, right? Something to think outside the box. And and that, that's such a cliche, but it really was like, I had no way of even forming thoughts of what that would look like. And it's not because I, I, and it was because those conversations didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. There was there were very few places to go and have those, those conversations. So if I'm doing anything, I'm hoping to create more spaces for those sorts of conversations. Thank
0: you. Um, so I want to turn briefly um, to what each of your organizations do Um, you know this is a career services panel and I think we have four really good resources that you can go online and check out immediately either now or later Um, so I'm wondering if you if again we can just go down the line or whoever wants to start um, if you can just specifically say what your organization does and how it might help us think outside of the box for these for these careers Whoever wants to start is coming. Go
6: ahead.
1: So one of the, I mentioned the incubators before. One of the things that I got frustrated with was if you're in a graduate program that has some kind of uh, contextual requirement, like an internship, that all of the institutions that are managing risk for you being out in the world practicing are very risk averse. (laughs) So if you wanna do something entrepreneurial, it's very hard because we have standard structures of how you do that. So part of what my organization does is creates uh, that, it's not really a safety, but a space in which the other institutions can be okay with. And you can do really extraordinary new things and try out in an incubator setting where you're with other creative people who are imagining new spaces um, when I talk to, for the last five years, w- with students who are thinking in these new ways, when I ask them what they need the most or, or have struggled with the most, um, there's a couple of things. Money, obviously. Because in uh, faith settings, we're not most of us aren't organized well to support new ministries. We know how to pay people to show up on Sundays or Friday nights or whatever. Um, So that's a big piece, uh, and that's another thing I'll be doing is raising capital to support people in these, uh, as they're entering into these spaces, professionally or through internships. The other piece is space. They don't have physical space, right, in, I live in Metro Denver. Our uh, real estate market is horrible, it's very high. So to live here, and then also to have any kind of rental space to try out a new um, vocation I'm trying to speak beyond my um, particular tradition if you're hearing me pause. That's almost impossible, but here's the thing. Our churches are dying, uh, literally, in this country. They're closing shop uh, for a variety of reasons. And as they decline, you have giant buildings with large worship space, small and medium gathering spaces and office spaces, kitchens and fellowship halls, right, on large plots of property that are central to any community usually, right, they're walking, they're very walkable, uh, to stores and to schools. And then those are in Metro Denver in the last eight years, 40% of church sales went to commercial enterprise. They're being turned in this city into luxury lofts. So right, mm, counter missional, quite a bit. and. We have these assets, but we're in such a deficit mind frame that we're not thinking about them that way. So part of my work is building relationships with local congregations and clergy to find fit. So when there's someone that, um, we have a a student I worked with last year who's interning this year, uh, who is a musician, singer-songwriter, amazingly talented woman. And so she and I talked, and she said, "There's not really places to have people hear your music. Like it's bars that are loud, and people are drunk, and like we have to pay to pay to be there, and then they don't really do any marketing for us, so we have to do all that. So it's kind of a crappy deal, right?" <laughs> and I put my heart and soul into this work. And so she's interning at a church that has extra space. Um, I just saw just saw her the other day, and she spent the week with friends renovating it. The church gave their permission to totally renovate the space and she's creating a listening room for uh, musicians to come so they have their opening night next weekend that I'll go to but those are the kinds of things that gather us into community in ways that we need to gather we're desperate for community and for relationship with one another we're very isolated and we're in fear and we're hating and becoming much more violent in our culture so there are things we have to do to counter that um, so I'm trying to create the networks and the resources so that we can Put people together, and also to talk to churches, because there are churches, right? Where like if you change the curtain in this room, like we this is like a huge, like year-long argument, right? There are some people like that. None of us are like that about our stuff. <laughs> so, right, those are some of the conversations. Is how do you negotiate change? Um, right? How do you, in your decline and dying, is a difficult thing to go through and it's really difficult to go corporately as a community. So how do you create a process where you invoke ritual um, relationships, build new relationships, give, transfer, right? Have that process go through where you're giving new life but perhaps you're not there in the same capacity or if you are there in the same capacity, you're one part of a larger vision. Um, So in working with churches, right, going out into the community to do relational meetings, to learn, there's tons, uh, Colorado has the highest number of nonprofits per capita in the country. We're very good people here, if you need (laughs) somewhere to move to. Anyway, however, we need space, and like I said, our commercial real estate is really high, so people who are in the healing arts, um, I've talked to a variety of people who do physical therapy, um, any kind of counseling, uh, spiritual direction, nonprofits who are working on sex trafficking issues, on immigration rights, small nonprofits that need space to start up—those are all in line with, uh, for my tradition or Christian mission. Right in the gospel, in the Bible, it talks about all of these things, <laughs> and that's where our space could be. So that's the other part of the work that I'm doing—is connecting people the space that need it so they can grow um, in their career I often do have discernment conversations with people um, of all walks of life my previous work before theology and ministry uh, was mostly people going into nonprofit but some in business and uh, other capacities to figure out like you were talking about how do I take these things that I'm gifted in at and love doing and give me energy and find a place where that fits well, where I'm respected and valued, uh, where I can have a sense of community in relationships with people I work with. So those are all the kinds of conversations that happen throughout the work, regardless. Um, But, sorry, I'll pass on. That's a general gist of it.
2: It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing work. Um, So Imagine PhD tries, to provide an online space to do some of this exploration, right? So one of the challenges to, one of the many challenges to imagining um, the opportunities and options that are available for you, um, or for one after, or when they decide to finish, um, or somebody decides for them to finish a, a advanced degree. Um, is, you know, one of these challenges is sort of not having the space to have these conversations, being embarrassed or feeling shameful about wanting to have these conversations, not having the right outlet um, or the right outlets to have those conversations. Um, so we have an online tool that allows for um, three different kinds of self assessment so skills assessments, interest assessments, and value assessments. Um, the skills and interest assessments then um, based on your responses to those assessments point you to job families that align with um, the skills and as you know your highest ranked skills and interests um, as you self-assess them for yourself, right? So um, it shows you some where your alignments and misalignments are with different job families. So this, the tool has 16 job families that are were created um, by looking at sort of um, hundreds of um Uh, jobs that alumni from institutions all across the country um, um, alumni of humanities and social science disciplines where they ended up and we did a um, a big analysis of all those roles and responsibilities of people in those roles and then created 16 categories that represented the you know majority of the people who sort of came out of humanities and social science degrees Um, and that one of two of the 16 Um, our faculty so this is not so part of what we're trying to do also is to shift the conversation as Emily alluded it's one of my most favorite things this idea that there is a job there is one job market as opposed to a job market of which there are lots of jobs. Um, so faculty is one option within many, many other options. Um, and of course, we are not representing every single possible job family that exists, but we're, we're representing those that seem um, to be the direction that many or most of our humanities and social science PhDs in particular go into. Um, so the skills and the interest assessment points you to your alignment and misalignment to those job families. Um, and then we have. Um, over 300 resources related to each of those job families. So we have, um, the resources are, range from just sort of profiles and articles that talk about the kinds of jobs that exist within a job family um, to the sort of online resources for gaining skills that are most relevant to those job families. uh, LinkedIn groups um, and other ways um, that you can connect with people who are in those job families and then Um, Lots and lots of resources about how to actually apply for and find those jobs. So the specific job boards that exist, um, that are specific to the jobs in that job family, uh, the resources um, that are available online um, to helping you sort of create materials or be marketable for the jobs in that job family, Um, and then we also have some original content. So for each job family there is a... Um, a series of job descriptions and one in particular that is um, annotated so that you can sort of look at a job description and sort of see the way that the HR speak um, could connect to your experience in a a graduate program. Um, And then a cover letter and a resume that are then created in response to that job description so that you can see sort of the places where the job description um, asks for things that um, we don't necessarily think of as graduate students as things we've done, say, right, um, uh, the, like, project management, right? That's not a word that we can, that, that's not a phrase that we talk about in the work we do, and yet we have examples of project management all the time, right? So then it shows you how you can pitch your dissertation, writing your dissertation or leading a class as an example of project management. Um, it also has a direct um, link, a direct feed to Indeed, which is a, a large aggregate job posting uh, aggregator um, for specific jobs in that job family. And again, all the jobs that are represented in that job family in the job descriptions or in Indeed might not be appealing. Um, they might not be interesting to you at all. They might be super interesting. It might seem totally irrelevant. Um, but I think, again, in order to, you know, one of our philosophies is one of, one of the ways that we can help imagine what the options are is to see what the options are. Um, and so it might be that you can figure out what you don't want to do, which then slowly gets you to help figure out what it is that you do want to do. Um, so we, pr- we try to um, really provide as much insight as we can um, into this range of job families um, uh, on the site. And then the last piece is there's a planning tool. Um, so one of the things that's really challenging, right, is we have so many. There are so many expectations on um, on us as students, as faculty members, as as administrators. As you know, we have a lot of a lot of responsibilities, and it's often difficult for us to sort of figure out how to balance the responsibilities of our degree requirements with our personal requirements, with our social justice work, with our um, with our the, you know sort of planning for how we're gonna pay for things, um, how to get exercise, and then to fit our professionalization into that also can be very, very overwhelming. Um, So we have a tool that allows you to sort of set individual goals, um, characterize those as you want into sort of different categories to plan when you want those done and then to you know it can integrate with your calendar so that it reminds you that you said you were going to do an informational interview and in consulting did you do that informational interview and <laughs> in consulting um, and it's very flexible we provide a lot of um, suggested goals that you can use but also you can input your own goals into it um, and it can work on different timescales um,
1: and
3: that sort of thing. So that's a sort of general overview of the tool. Um, <clears throat> um, so over the years, the Professor's Inn has been running for about eight years now, and um, in my and, and I have come to notice that every time uh, the, th- the the feedback that I hear most often from people who come to my talks, read my blog, read my book, um, is is remarkably consistent. It is, it, they say, or write, that was terrifying, yet weirdly empowering. And after hearing that about a thousand times, I realized that that is in a way the mission <laughs> of the professor is in. It's to be terrifying and empowering. What I mean by that is that my goal is to break people free from the state of dependency on the external validation systems and the rigid value structures of the academy, which envision only one possible route, even when they give lip service to a range of possible routes, um, which, you know, increasingly they do, but they're not serious. Uh, by they, I mean departments and advisors. Um, and so, and you know, people that you meet at conferences <laughs> and so on in the elevator. Um, there's really only one route that is validated and that is the elite tenure line job. And even a tenure line jobs at non-elite institutions are are dissed, believe it or not, which is stunning at the, in 2018. But in any case, um, it's my goal is really to uh, to, to uh give people, graduate students in particular, but also uh, people with PhDs, adjuncts, those who are struggling in the career in any, in any stage, um, the tools to grasp the reality of the real, actual current tenure track job market, which is absolutely catastrophically bad, and um, to, to separate themselves from a, this, a, a status of dependency on the opinions of advisors and colleagues in the field so that they can begin to imagine themselves, or you can begin to imagine yourselves, um, independent from that, and begin to reclaim autonomy, or what you said, reclaim agency, um, about your own career. And the forces against that are just prodigious. It's just stunning. And I was just at the AAA, meet, the anthropology meetings, just in San Jose, right before coming here. And I gave a, I was on a panel, just some, not like this one, but you know, in any case, it was about post-academic transition. And, um, and I gave a spiel, a more formal one than I'm doing right now, and immediately a bunch of hands went up at the end of it and said, well, Foucault would be turning over in his grave right now because all of this talk of empowerment and agency, well, pshaw. Anthropologist, right? Am I
6: right? (laughs) Anyway,
3: um, uh, and it was just stunning to watch the way the conversation just went in circles and kind of spiraled down the toilet um, because nobody wanted that. They didn't. The people in that room, despite having gone to the effort to come to that panel, they had a whole hundred other panels they could have gone to, didn't want to reclaim agency. They didn't. It was very strange. And that's what the 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 universe, the higher the PhD structure is so intense that I do call it a cult-like system, and if not a cult per se, it's a very cult-like structure. And it is very hard to to uh, recover your your mental autonomy and your psychic autonomy and your emotional autonomy from that the hazing structure that is the PhD training system. And so that's really what the purpose of the professor is in is. And so the interesting thing is, and some of you are probably thinking this, you're like, well, how could that be when you're training people primarily for the tenure track job? But what's super interesting is that my clients always say this, and my readers always say this, they say, I didn't get a job in the end, but it was incredibly empowering to go through the process of trying and editing my materials with you and going coaching or whatever because now I understand what the stakes really are, I understand what the, job re- the jobs really want and I've decided I don't wanna do that after all. Now that I understand the reality of it instead of the myth, I don't wanna do it anymore. And so, or I know, or I do still wanna do it and I understand I need a lot more publications than I currently have and I was living in denial about that. So it's just a sort of reality-based intervention and that is in the, with the goal of being empowering. And again, that with that with that empowerment, you can um, begin to take risks. And that's what the, P- the other thing about the PhD training is, although the, the, the conceit, the self-conceit of the, of the academy is that it's very risk. It's bit, we're all very risk-takers and free thinkers. In fact, it's truly one of the most risk-averse systems I've ever really seen. And I did not know that myself when I was in it. I call it when I was still drinking the Kool-Aid. I also thought I was a great risk-taker. Now I understand, there are, no, there are almost no risks in the, in the academic career, everything is laid out for you. So with that empowerment, the idea that you can begin to take risks, you can begin to imagine other alternatives, you learn what they are, and then you begin to put a little toe into the water and say, oh, I didn't die. I, I went to an informational interview and I didn't die. Um, and begin to imagine other
5: futures for yourselves. That's, that's, what, that's what we do. So, um, the HA, the goal of our Career Diversity for Historians initiative is pretty similar to what everyone else has articulated, it's to change the culture and practice or culture and structure of doctoral education to do two things, to better articulate the value and purpose of a history PhD, what, what are you actually learning when you get a history PhD and you could, you could expand that to a humanities PhD and then also crucially to broaden the career horizons of history PhDs. So those are our two goals that we're after and we believe that change happens in a department, right? If, if, we, if we want this to be a long-term lasting change, it needs to happen within where PhDs are produced which or are earned, which is, which is inside a department. Um, we have been embarked on this particular project since 2011 when our then president and executive director uh, wrote an article that they published in our news magazine called No More Plan B. And it basically said, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about jobs beyond the professoriate as, as plan B. They shouldn't be seen as, as failures or also rans. We need to really take this seriously. I actually remember reading that article and thinking oh, even the A.J. thinks I won't get a job. Um, <laughs> I only read like the first paragraph, right? Like I did a, I did that bad thing where you only read the, I'm, I should have read the whole thing. Um, and look where I am now. Um, but as, as also as a historian, I'm gonna play the historian card. I wanna point out that this conversation is actually not a new one.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
5: this conversation about what to do uh, about, about the, the crisis in the tenure track job market has been, ha- it happens periodically uh, since, the late, since the late 70s, the first time that the bottom really fell out of the academic job market after the boom of the Cold War and the baby boom and the, and the massive university expansion that happened in the 50s and the 60s, the, the bottom fell out. They didn't need the teachers at the, and the, the teacher-researcher divide started to, that, that easy division of labor started to not work so well. Um, and, and so that's, it's, it's launched its head it then in the mid-90s was another time, and then most, most dramatically uh, after 2008 and the, and the Great Recession, as we've been calling it. Which, as we do, our, as we do work on you know, gathering data about the history profession or the discipline of history, it's clear that the academic job market still hasn't recovered from the really deep um, hits that it took. So we, uh, we're we trying to do something different this time. We're trying to, to actually shift the conversation. And most of what we do is work with departments. Uh, but we also create resources that are available to all historians. And we also convene conversations. We, help, we hold panels like these um, and other sorts of things at our, our annual meeting and on our website. So let me. Uh, briefly give you some overview of some things that I think are important that we've been doing that have been helpful. um, And then also some resources that we've created for graduate students. So I think arguably the most important thing that we have done through this project since 2011, we've been doing this sort of work, is to work on data about career outcomes for history PhDs. It's really, really important to have transparency of outcomes when we first did our, we did a first uh, research uh, or or data uh, work uh, in, I want to say, 2013 is when we published it. Uh, it said, you know, oh, about 50% of history PhDs get jobs on the tenure track, and then there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens. That was, you know, there's a lot more in there, but that was the basic finding. And everyone looked at us and said, well, not in my field. Well, not, not my students, mm-hmm. not in my department. And we were like, well, okay, then, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find everyone. And we, d- and we did. <laughs> um, we, we looked up more than 8000 history PhDs who who earned their degrees between 2004 and 2013 I crucially am just outside of that actually I'm not in the data set I got I got my degree in 2014 We did that on purpose to capture the Great Recession um, And also to not <clears throat> to not skew the data based on we know that a lot of people um, the first three years out Right That you haven't settled into a career yet, so we wanted to see like where do people land? Um, and that data has been really really helpful. It's program specific. It's field specific uh, a lot of the a lot of the interactive slides you can uh, Um, look at gender and other variables as well and this is this is where we are not the only ones doing this we're the only ones doing it in a discipline framework the Association of (coughs) American Universities is doing some um, cross discipline uh, data work that looks like this the Council of Graduate Schools is doing some cross-discipline research that looks like this theirs is actually really interesting because they're actually talking to people We, we just looked them up on the internet essentially and found out where they were working so we don't know what how they feel about it just where they are um, but that has been really huge to, to argue for transparency. Because once you start, once you say, this is what it looks like, this is what the possibilities are, it doesn't have to just be a, this is why you won't get a job. It can be, look at all the things that people are doing that you didn't even know existed. That's a good place to start. Um, the other thing that we've learned is that faculty and graduate students together create create the, the culture in a department. Um, and both of them resist the idea of change. Uh, and they, And they often come at it from, from a place of vulnerability, connected to identity, actually, which is really important to remember. So, graduate students, uh, when when they're when they're when they are resisting, and they don't always. Sometimes they say, "Thank God, where have you been?" You know, like this is exactly the conversation I want to be having. I, you know, but sometimes they say, "I didn't come to graduate school for this." You know, I didn't come to graduate school to be an accountant, and I'm like, "I'm not telling you to be an accountant." And I think this is where the Imagine PhD tool is actually really helpful because what you came to graduate school is to be a certain kind of person and to do a certain kind of work right but you and you might associate that with being a professor and some professors do that kind of work but not but what you think being a professor is might differ across institutions um, across uh... whether you're in a city or not in a city, you know, the work looks different, and you need to know what you're signing up for. So, so that's, what, that's uh, it's, it's, an, it's a sense of identity. Graduate students, I want to be a certain kind of person, I want to do a certain kind of work, and I'm here to tell you, great, I want you to be who you want to be and do the work you want to do, right? Like, that's what we're here for. And then from faculty, it's a similar vulnerability expert, uh, uh, and identity, and it's, it comes from feeling like they failed their students, Right? or it comes from a sense of I don't have the expertise to help my students, like I, I might in theory be okay with them going and doing something in the nonprofit, but all of my friends are professors, everyone I know, my entire professional network is academics, I have no idea how to help you. To which I'm here to say, yeah, that's fine too. That's where the HA can also help. And all you need to know is you don't need to be like the world's leading expert on informational interviews. You just need to know what they are and that people like Sarah exist, right? like that's and that's how that's how that conversation often often goes and in fact we also don't like being told they're failures right I mean none of us none of us like to be told we're being failures but particularly if you if you, if you identify with being successful <laughs> then that is particularly um, catastrophic yeah galling that's exactly the <laughs> right word yeah um, so all of this is to say we're trying to make the conversation happen about what you're doing during graduate school, not just after. So what are you learning and what and what opportunities for professional development are there while you're a graduate student and not just getting to the end and suddenly sort of like launching off you know, into some terrifying skydive, that's not what we want. Well, unless you do, you know, and then that you do you, but that was not what worked for me. Um, so trying to get departments to have this conversation earlier, starting from year one, starting from maybe when they're talking to undergraduate about going to graduate school, talk about that. And then we have a couple of resources that are actually aimed at, at, um, at graduate students. One is Career Contacts, which is an informational interview service that we started. It actually grew right out of that No More Plan B article when we were inundated with history PhDs working outside the academy who said, this is fabulous, how can I help? And we were like, oh, um, well, actually, you have all this expertise right, maybe you would share it. Um, Right now, we have had graduate students participate in it from more than half the PhD granting programs in the US, so it's getting beyond the the 20 institutions or the about 40 institutions that we've had direct uh, grant related work with. Um, And about 200, more than 200 senior contacts. These are the the PhDs outside the academy who are are lending their expertise. So this is something that is for history graduate students, but you could do something like this as well. You could figure out who, uh, you could ask your department to look up alumni and then reach out to the ones who are doing interesting uh, things that are interesting to you and set up your own informational interview. Uh, You could learn a little bit more about what you wanna do by (laughs) doing Imagine PhD to help you with that. uh, and, and there's also an information interview. I like to tell people it's just a conversation. It's 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 not actually scary, and you talk to people all the time. So, don't don't make it more than it needs to be. Um, we also, as I said, have sessions like this at our annual meeting. We also have set up a career fair, which is sort of mass informational interviewing where we have lots of history PhDs who are doing jobs or who, people who work at uh, local organizations often. So I wish when we had met in Denver, I wish I would known about you. I would have invited you to come <laughs> to talk about what they're doing and, and um, how a history PhD might be helpful for that. Uh, and we also have a recurring session that we call, how can I be a historian in this job, which gets to the, this issue of identity, right? I have certain skill sets and, and ways of seeing the world because I have spent so long developing myself as a historian. When, when are those skills helpful and useful in a job that, even, that might not look like a historian? say I'm a consultant or, or something like that? And then finally, I'll leave you with um, we had this we had this realization when when early on we were doing lots of focus groups with, with history PhDs and well, actually humanities PhDs broadly outside the professoriate. And, and uh, we asked them, you know, what do you wish you had learned in graduate school? What, what are you doing now that you wish you had known, you know, so that you could have prepared better? And from those conversations, we really distilled five skills. Um, that that you don't learn in graduate school, but are very helpful if you're trying to uh, get a job beyond the professoriate. And as soon as we sort of made that connection, we realized actually, they're really helpful if you're a faculty job, if you get a faculty job as well. Because it turns out, I don't know if you know, but it turns out that professors don't actually spend all their time writing books and they actually don't even spend all their time teaching and writing books. There's a whole lot of work that goes into being a member of a department that's not just being, that's not just what you spend your time in graduate school doing. So I'll briefly go over there's, these skills. They're also on our website though, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more. So the first is communication to a variety of audiences and a, a variety of media. The second is collaboration particularly with people who don't think like you do. That could be a different disciplinary perspective. Uh, it could be a different cultural perspective. It could be, for example, how to talk to an accountant, right? somebody who, who just doesn't approach a work problem the same way that you do. But it's also about thinking about your work in, in a collaborative institutional way. I do a lot of work for the AHA that doesn't have my name on it. right? I do a lot of work where I am speaking like this, but also I don't, a lot of work where I have had a hand, but you wouldn't know it and that sort of work, thinking about how can you support a a broader collaborative project. Um, The third is quantitative literacy, which is like really scary for Mm -hmm. historians and probably humanists, Um, but the way I explain it is to understand that numbers tell stories the same way that words and objects and images do, and that you just need to be open to information that is conveyed numerically and, and have a very at the very least, a basic understanding of it. And also things like budgets. When you can understand a budget, you have so much power. So (laughs) don't be afraid of the budgets. Um, The fourth is intellectual self-confidence, which often shocks people because they say, what have I been doing except learning how to be really confident? But often you're trained only narrowly, right? I'm the world's leading expert on this thing, like, this year, right, if you're a historian, or this like one event, especially if you're a 20th century historian, these six months, right? I know everything about those six months. Um, and what what intellectual self-confidence is, is the ability to say, OK, I can't become the world's leading expert overnight, but I can know enough to tell you what you need to know to make that decision, or to inform that policy, or to have an argument or an opinion that is helpful toward whatever we're doing. And not only that, but I can do it in 48 hours if you need me to, right? Like, the, the ability. and. Yeah, I've never done Twitter before, but um, I'll do it if you, need, if you need someone to learn how to do that. Or I, I don't, I've never been there, but I can figure out how to get there, or I've never read those types of, of documents, but I'll figure it out, right? Like that, I'll figure yeah. it out. Um, that ability to do that. And then finally, the fifth one, which isn't really its own skill, but is threaded through all the rest of them, is digital literacy, which is to understand that we live in a digital world. All of those things have a digital component and you, you cannot you cannot be outside of that. So again, like, you can't insist that you'll never look in an Excel spreadsheet. You might have to have at least a passing knowledge of Excel <laughs> and to know what Twitter is, even if you don't you know engage in it every day. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I could talk a little bit more, but I think those, especially in terms of what how graduate students can can take their own agency, I think that's where I wanna leave back.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it sort of leads into um, my next question, which is about advice. You know, we've been talking about having very difficult conversations, either between faculty members or between students or between faculty and, or between student and advisor. Um, Personally, when I told my advisor that I was giving up my teaching assistantship to, Take a full time job in the dean's office at the college at Temple University, she was not happy with me at all. (laughs) Um, She was a bit furious, actually, that I was leaving the classroom um, and that I was gonna give all of this up to, you know do paperwork, push papers around. Um, and I had to have multiple conversations with her about my student loan debt and the fact that I was not making enough money in my in my TA position. Um, and that I really at that point wasn't even sure if I was going to go on the academic job market um, for various personal reasons. Um, but that was the conversation I had to have. It was a really sort of scary one <laughs> um, because I felt. Like I was disappointing her in some way and, and, and to a certain extent I probably did. Um, but she came around to sort of understanding the, the needs that I, you know, I needed to take care of certain things at that time. So I'm just wondering if um, we could talk a little bit about you know, what advice would you give to a grad student who wants to have this conversation with their advisor or with another grad student or with career services at their university. And they do exist. If you don't know about your career services at your universities, they do exist. And you know, I was talking to Jenny before the panel that at Temple, the career services university-wide, they really service, they tend to service undergrad students more than anything else. Um, that's their priority which makes sense um, because it's sort of assumed that your faculty advisor will be the only resource you need to get a job but that's just no longer true Um, and maybe it wasn't true ever (laughs) I don't know Um, so what sort of what sort of advice would you give a grad student or even a faculty member who wants to start having these conversations um, within their departments
1: the best advice that I was given when I started my PhD was to find people you can work with. So some of us come into the PhD programs or other graduate programs looking at flashy names, the people who have published the most books, um, who are out traveling and speaking publicly and never on campus, and are coached to orient to them for advisors. And I would say not that those aren't great people. They may be. But focus instead on who are the people that can work with you and that you can work with meaning that you get each other, that will not throw stumbling blocks in front of you. And most people don't do that intentionally. I appreciate what my colleagues said. That's often just, they had a different experience, right? If someone just went through school, through their PhD, and then tenure track faculty, and that's their experience in the world, that's what they're gonna move from. And so, if that's not what you wanna do, or or you want a more diverse kind of uh, opportunity for conversation, find those people Uh, And don't be shy about it. I had my first year in my doctoral studies, like the first quarter, (laughs) I met with someone that was on my assigned committee uh, who learned that I was working full time um, at the University of Denver and doing my doctoral work. And it was a male who said to my face, uh, you're not a serious scholar then. Now, in my current role, I would have had another conversation with that person. But at the time, I didn't have time for that, because I was working. 50 and 60 hours a week and doing classwork, So I said goodbye. And I found a different advisor, right? And not not meanly, I didn't, (laughs) I wasn't mean, but I found what resources worked. And so that's what I would say to you is find those people who you can work with um, who will support you and challenge you. You know, they won't just pat you on the back on the whole way, but they will help you expand and grow and learn. Um, The other advice I have is get outside of the academy. Um, I'm very privileged to have a PhD and a master's. There's a lot that I learned in that process. There are great friends that I've made in that process. Uh, There's a lot I love about the Academy. So don't, please don't hear any ill will towards the Academy, but it's limited. It was built for a particular purpose, and it hasn't shifted much or changed or adjusted. So get outside of the Academy and find professional development opportunities where you will be in relationship or in proximity to people who you might want to work with or whose jobs you're interested in and build those relationships those are the people that will help you get the jobs you're looking for people that are in the academy who've only been in the academy they just don't have those relationships um, so it's kind of a simple lens at that uh, but it also kind of grounds you in reality uh, when you're in especially doctoral <laughs> studies, but in graduate studies you can get very, and, and as you said, right, it trains you to be narrow, uh, but you're also human, and you can't exist in that l- limit of narrowness. So find other places where you can feed your soul, um, whatever your spiritual or faith or non-faith identity is. Uh, feed that part of yourself, your heart, as well as your mind, um, so that you are in touch with what's happening in the world, in the other thing I will say is we are in desperate need of smart people in this country to be in all kinds of places. So I'm a huge supporter of graduate degrees, doctoral work, because it, it is imperative that people who know how to think, know how to research, how to find data that's valid, right? Know how to critically analyze data, how to communicate information get into every single field that is out there, right? And we need all kinds of people of different backgrounds and identities to do this work as well. So we're not just hearing from the same voices and experience over and over.
2: Um, All of the things that she said. (laughs) Um, And a couple of other things. One of the paradigms that um, I often use um, to talk about a lot of what Jenny just mentioned is this idea that I think, when we are in graduate school we often exist in a tunnel um, and we go through the tunnel and everybody's sort of in the tunnel and then we start to see a light at the end of the tunnel but when we actually get there we're blinded because we've been in this very dark tunnel Um, and it's really jarring um, and it's really unsettling when you haven't had any light from the outside um, and you get to the end and you can't see um, because you haven't you haven't been you haven't been exposed to what's out there. So really, really just to emphasize which what Jenny's saying, both from the standpoint of those who are graduate students and in graduate school, figure out ways for their to put holes in your tunnel, right? To be successful, you have to be in the tunnel. I'm not suggesting that you can sort of be outside the tunnel and be particularly successful. I think it's very, very difficult. I think um, the training is still what the training is and the expectations are what they are. I think there are some Programs that are doing amazing work to innovate and to try to create new opportunities, but it's taking us. Um, a long time to create this culture change, and people are working really, really hard at it. Um, but it's just going to take us some time. Um, so I think the best we can do is just try to figure out ways to create holes in the tunnel for ourselves and for faculty and administrators and deans to figure out ways to create those holes in the tunnel for their students. Um, bring in. So you know, students should go forth and do informational interviews and find people to talk to that um, are doing different kinds of things. Um, but for faculty and department leaders bring those people to campus um, talk with your professional organizations to if you don't if you don't know where your alumni are who are doing things outside of, of the academy um, LinkedIn is an excellent resource um, if you feel like um, you don't you know you don't know but but the professional organizations particularly um, they are in the SBL and AHA um, in particular, are doing really, really good work um, in this area to try to find people. um, And people want to help. They want to talk to you. They want to talk about what they're doing. Um, So bring those people to campus. I think that it's um, really, really important to get exposure. I think that it's really important to Um, culture change to bring those people to campus and have them talk about their work as real work. In addition to the job market, my other favorite thing is my work, as though my work could only be academic research. Um, And I think that um, how how I can be an historian in this job is one of my most favorite things that the AHA has done because we are trained to think in the traditions that we're trained to think in, and that doesn't ever go away. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest fears um, that I felt as a graduate student and that when I talk to graduate students that they fear too. That if if I leave this path, that I somehow abandon all these things that are important to me and are fundamental to who I am. And nobody's taking that away from you. Um, so figuring out how to identify what those values are and what the things are that are fundamental to your sense of professional identity and talking to other people about how they maintain those things, um, and in their work so that these divides don't, the gaps aren't so, so enormous. Um, and the, the last thing I'll just say is I think one of the things that we, Um, in addition to learning what opportunities are out there and how people maintain the sense of identity and do their work in all sorts of different ways, I think the other thing that we have to really learn from from people who have have gone forth and found these opportunities um, is to learn how to talk about how we do what we do um, as graduate students, as academics, as opposed to what we do, right? So the focus is very much about I'm an expert in this very particular Mm -hmm. thing and I can tell you all about my content, but we don't think very much or talk very much about how we do the work we do. And that's really the work that has to happen in um, translating and transferring a lot of the skills and the work that we learn to do as graduate students into all of these other jobs. Um, you know, one of the great things that a lot of professional organizations like the AHA and AR and SBL are doing is trying to communicate with employers to help educate them about the work that happens um, in graduate school, right? But many employers don't hire lots of PhDs. They don't know what that work means. So, faculty, um, you know, again, faculty aren't, don't need to be experts in what a nonprofit person does in a particular nonprofit or what they do in consulting. Um, but for, for us all to be a little bit more aware of and transparent about, how we're doing our work and how we're thinking and what's the language that we can use to really educate other people about the value of the PhD and the value of, of academic thinking and academic research because um, we can learn to be better risk takers. I would argue we could learn to be more critical thinkers in addition to, to uh, academia being a place where I feel like we pretend that we're risk takers and we're not. The other thing that I'm coming to really, really come to terms with is it's a place that really talks a lot about the value of critical thinking, and yet I think academics are the least critical thinkers um, in many ways that we have. Um, and I and I say that with deep respect and love for academics and a, an acknowledgment that we need to be honest about our limitations. Um, and we need to be honest because it's not serving anybody. Um, it's not serving anybody to not be honest and to be, not be transparent about how we do our work and how it matters in the world. Um, there's a lot of really, really great work that needs the amazing thinking um, that, we, that you are all trained to do, um, but we need to do a better job of figuring out how to explain what that work is to people who don't know it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I will echo everything that my colleagues have said. Every single thing is just so fantastic. I want to dispute what the very last thing that you said. There are people who benefit from us not telling the truth. (laughs) There are absolutely people. There is a whole power structure that benefits from us not telling the truth about the academy. That's why we keep getting grad students funneled into every single department to teach the classes to keep the entire academic enterprise running. So the entire academic enterprise is running on this lie. And that is the, and there is money behind the, and status and prestige behind that lie. So that uh, professors who are in PhD programs don't want to cut the PhD program because their status will decline if they are no longer professors in a PhD program and then of course within a PhD program the professors who have the most PhD students have higher status than those who have fewer so I think that there are powerful powerful I mean I'm always the voice of cynicism everywhere I go but uh, there are powerful forces that are mitigating against
7: absolutely um,
3: everything that we're trying to talk about here so if you feel like, wow, like why, how, like why do I so rarely hear this kind of conversation? It's because there are so many entrenched interests trying to prevent this conversation. Or there are people who are basically good-willed. A lot of advisors, I think, are not evil. They are like more or less want their students to be successful and not starve, but they, but they can't quite make the leap, the psychic leap, to understanding the way their own status and their paycheck is wrapped up in the the money and the and the and the uh, the economy the political economy of the of the academy so anyway i just wanted to say that because i just feel like it's really important you're totally right it's to absolutely important but anyhow i can't add much to what uh what my colleagues have said um uh, but i have a different way that i uh, one way that i articulate what people have said so far which is to um that investment, we have so, so many of us have talked about identity, that we are so attached to our identity, like I'm an anthropologist. Really, even more than that, I'm a professor. Uh, that was so hard for me to let go of. That was It was really hard, and it, it's really weird because in, it's in very weird little moments. So for example, when I'm sitting next to someone on the airplane and they say, what do you do? I can't say I'm a professor anymore. <laughs> uh, that sucks. Like It's so hard to explain what I do now and it takes it like half the flight because first I'm like, well, for, okay. So there's the academic job market, but it's like, in the, and you know, and so so it was so easy when I could just say I'm a professor, and there is not like in, there's the ego of I'm a professor, and so um, so I so I understand how much we're all attached to these identities, and then I'm a specialist in Japan, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a cultural anthropologist. They're all meaningful. Um, So, but you do have to, uh, uh, to do a dual thing, one is to disaggregate that into the collection of skills, so it's not the content, it's not like I study gender in Japan, it's I know how to do field work, I know how to do surveys, I know how to do interviews, I know how to get right for funding, grant writing, I know how to do public speaking, I know how to go to conferences, the whole nine yards, there's a hundred skills that you all could immediately off all of you, every single one of you right now, and there are more than just that, but those are the easy ones. Um, so it's disaggregating identity into your skills, but then it's also reclaiming the identity, that uh, even in what we're doing, we're still being an anthropologist, we're still being um, a scholar, we're still being a critical thinker, so it's sort of a, uh, a circular, a fluid, uh, Hegelian dialectic, as it were. <laughs> anyway. Um.
2: You still get to talk <laughs> like that. I cannot believe I just said that. <laughs> 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 because you did. Because you haven't let go of it. You just I, want it. I just
3: want that You can't undo it. <laughs> not you try? It's I there. Know. Anyway, and then the last point is that that we do, as academics, we do tend to still think in terms of advertised positions. It's very hard to get out of that because of the linearity and the rigidity of the academic job market. And so I just want to put in a plug for entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and that you can start your own business and that you can have a small business. And that doesn't mean you're an entrepreneur or you're a venture Capitalist, or, or you know, you, or, or anything big and scary, you can just have a little business on the side. That's what I did when I was still department head. I just had a little business on the side, and you can do both at the same time. You can stay on the academic job market. You can start trying out a few other things on the side. You can minimize your risk in that way, and take other, take take some classes um, at the chamber of commerce or at the library. Like our chamber of commerce in Eugene, Oregon, you know, offers regular classes on how to write a business plan and things like that. So there's all kinds of free training that you can get as you're exploring these avenues. But I do want to really encourage you that um, the world of of small business and entrepreneurship is really wonderful. And you all, as, as PhDs, you have tremendous skills that the general populace does not have, and mostly needs. And so think about that as well.
5: So I have the really difficult position of trying to say something new (laughs) after three people have basically covered the whole landscape. So I will be very brief, I hope. Um, What what I want to say is, again, I think as they have all very well uh, articulated. You cannot do this on your on your own. You do need to reach out to alumni who are doing interesting things, to your professional organizations who hold them. I mean, you guys are halfway there, right? You're here. You're in this room. Um, to uh, a lot of people, find a community on Twitter that's very uh, six, uh, helpful. So those sorts of things, uh, and use your whole life, right? If I sang in a choir in graduate school, if I if I had thought harder about it, maybe I could have used that to leverage more people in the community to think about like what other sorts of pe- work was out there you know, before I got to the end. So you do have to be out there in a, uh, um, talking to everybody else, but you also have a lot of, there's a lot that you can do on your own that you're already prepared to do because you have uh, humanities expertise, right? You're very good researchers. You can research the hell out of anything. So if you want to research out a career, a career path, do it. Right. You, you have the skills to ask the right questions and 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 you know start start down a path and say oh that's not going where I want and like redirect and go the other way, and, and comb through the internet to find things that are actually useful. You have those skills. Um, you also have uh, what a, what a colleague of mine likes to call humanities expertise, um, and you can use that to think about your own career path and career choices. So we were saying I forget which one of us was just saying that. Um, often academics forget to use the tools and critical thinking that they use in their work in their own life, right? So one of them in history is agency, right? Like we give historical agency to all of the historical actors, right? They, they all have it, all of them. And we, we recovered and we, and, we, and, we, and we invented and we like, you know, all of these things, but we have none, right? right. So one, create your own agency. But also as historians, and again, like I don't know what the, what the religious studies uh, uh, sort of corollary here is, but you do, so fill it in. Um, like, as historians, we, we tell a narrative, right? But historical actors, they have no idea how the story's gonna end while they're in it, right? I know, because I'm at the end, right? I know that that it, for example, in the Cold War, the Soviet Union never invades Germany, West Germany, but they didn't know that the whole time, <laughs> right? So they were building up all sorts of things because they thought it could happen any minute. That's awesome. I mean, you don't, you were not living with the threat of a Soviet invasion, but you know, your, your life, you don't know how it's going to end and that's fine. And you don't know what you're doing now, what are the, what are the things that are going to come together to put you in a position to do something, right? So a lot of graduate students, they want the checkbox. They want to the know that I got into graduate school and now my career path is going to unspool in front of me and if I just do all the things, I'll get where I want to be. And I've yet to find anybody where that actually works, even somebody who who, become, who is successful, right? And I'm saying air quotes for the recording, um, who, who gets the tenure track job. Most of them also have a story where I was in the right place at the right time and I had done the right things, but I was able, but they happened to be exactly the right things, right? So uh, don't try to make the narrative neat until you're at the end of it. You know you don't know exactly what the contingencies and what the and what the um the, the context is going to is is going how it's going to shape your story and be okay with that you're a humanist right <laughs> like be okay with ambiguity even in your own life like you you know how to do that so I like just that. embrace it
0: <laughs> yeah. um okay so in um to give everyone uh time for questions i think we're gonna Um, stop at the conversation up here and open it up for questions Um, I should say even though this is being recorded this is a you know safe space for you to ask anything I I'm speaking for you but um, to ask anything of the panelists Um, maybe you don't want to ask your faculty advisor ask us now Um, so um, any questions I just ask that you go up to the microphone so that we can um, everybody can hear the question and we can start off. We've out of Q&A if they being
1: right. Here, so if right. You let me know yeah. If you
6: that.
0: Yeah. That's fine um, turn.
6: I'm going to take chair's privilege and ask the first Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead
0: and line up if you want to do that. That's totally fine. So, hi
6: everybody. I'm Chrissy Hutchison-Jones. I'm the chair of the Applied Religious Studies Committee, so thank you for joining us today. Um, First thing I want to say is, um, adding on to Amy's point, leverage your institutional resources. Many of us, whether you're still in graduate school or you're adjuncting somewhere, are affiliated with an institution. And even if the Career Services Office is still driving at um, primarily undergraduates, maybe you don't know how to use Excel and yeah. they have like an online module where you can get the basics in an hour. Or if you're in some sort of a part-time staff position, I work at Harvard now and the Center for Workplace Development offers tons of online courses that you can take for free just by logging in with your institutional um, you know, information and get all sorts of information on things that well, I've never done that, and this job description says you have to know how to do that, and I can't apply for this because I don't know. So first of all, do that. Um, Second, all aar this this particular meeting i keep saying to people networking is not a dirty word <laughs> everybody's afraid of the word networking in fact amy a few days ago said that she's had people telling her not to use the word networking when talking to humanities grad students and i think you know linkedin is a great resource and networking is really important and yet somehow when we say that in rooms like this everybody freezes up <laughs> What would you, the professionals who've been doing this with people and coaxing people out of that mindset, say about LinkedIn and networking?
3: Oh, I haven't, I, I want to say something to say. I, I talk about this all the time in all of my talks because networking is such a dirty word for, and such a frightening word for academics. Um, and I, I wanna demystify it that this kind of, so first of all, so first of all, the majority of non-academic jobs are through word of mouth and, and connection. So it is quite important, it's something like 80%. Um, it is quite important that you talk to people. Um, that is how you are likely to find these other jobs. Um, But the talking to people doesn't mean that you suck up up to powerful people. And I think that's what the idea is that makes it so distasteful. But it's actually just sharing with people around you whom you encounter randomly as well as intentionally that you are looking for a job and that you are interested in certain avenues but you're also open. And so the example I use is say that you have a kid and you go out and you have a babysitter for that kid and that babysitter's mother happens to be the CFO for a local company Um, and so when she comes to pick up your babysitter you chat and you say, and that is networking. That babysitter's mother is somebody <laughs> that you're, you're, you're saying, hey, what do you do? Oh, here's what I do. Oh, interesting. And I'm, I'm actually looking for a job. Oh, interesting. Well, I, my office is not hiring right now, but you know what? Sounds like, I think there's someone in my company you should talk to. Boom. You have just successfully networked. And so that's all, it's, it's very, um, it can be quite improvisational. And these are also, I know, scary words for academics, but it can be, uh, and I know this because everybody freaked out at the Anthem meetings when I used them, so like I have evidence like just from two days ago, but um, it can be multi-dimensional, it can be improvisational, um, and like you said, we don't know the ultimate end point. We don't know that the babysitter's mother is going to, we don't know who's important and who isn't. That is rather scary, I understand, coming from the world we live in, but um, it's just talking. That's
1: all it is, just sharing who you are, what you're about. Yeah, go ahead. So it occurs to me that the Progressive Church and the Academy have one thing really in common. We're horrible at talking about how great we are in <laughs> how much we value our communities. Right? We're really good. Probably some of you are good at, I don't know, telling friends about like the best restaurant you've ever been to or the best beer you've had, or what right. You would talk to anyone about it Mm -hmm. for like 30 minutes. (laughs) But we'll struggle to talk about yourselves or your career interest or to ask someone else about theirs. And so I I lift that up as a point of reflection because how different would the world be if certain of our groups that don't do that did that more than maybe some of the groups that talk a lot about themselves? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also, be curious. I get that the Academy makes us focus on ourselves in weird ways in this effort to try and become an expert in something to be better than others to climb a ladder that is not going to exist at some point in the near future because the financial structure is not feasible in higher ed and the tenure structure isn't feasible but anyway be curious about other people and get outside of yourself because everybody is valuable <laughs> and everybody has a story that they want to share and you even though you may not some may some may not talk about your story you're all i my experience in higher ed is that everybody is studying what they're studying because they have a deep need to answer a question personally. It's not about the objective, right? Like, I value objectivism. I'm wearing a collar, so I need to be careful of how I talk. Um, I value objectivism. Also, I don't think it's a uh, reality. I think it's something we try to do, to, to explore, um, to get the right information. But we're all here because we have a question we need to answer for ourselves channel that part of yourselves, and share that with other people, and ask about what their big questions are, what motivates them in the world, and have those deeper connections. That for me is energizing. Like I get, like when I've had to go to like, networking events that have networking in the title, I find those very awkward. Because everybody's in this weird like <laughs> business card mode, and like you know, so you, so you can do networking and relational development in other ways. Um, if that is really uncomfortable for you, but be yourself and be curious. The only other thing I, I just would want to add to
2: is I think that it's often more comfortable to do, and I think relational development is really the language we should start using more than networking. Um, so thank you. I appreciate that. I like that. Um, Talk to people when you have nothing. When there's nothing at stake, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's it's easier to talk about what kind of beers you like because it doesn't feel like unless you're a brewer, like we're trying to open a brewery, right? Like it's not there's nothing at stake. Um, I think it's very uncomfortable to talk to people about job search when you're on the job search. It's much less um, uncomfortable. It's much you know more comfortable when when you're not looking for a particular job, so that you're just being curious, right? You're just human to human sitting down trying to learn about what other people do and how they spend their time and what makes them excited and what makes them angry and what works and what doesn't work, right? Um, so trying to, encourage your, trying to encourage yourself or your students to do the work when they're not, when there's, you know, they're not in the sort of frantic mode of I need a job, um, I think it, it just loosens, loosens up um, the introverts. And I think it just sort of makes, makes things a little bit calmer. I would add just one quick thing, which is all of this
5: is right. But remember, a lot of the other thing that makes networking so scary is it sounds like you're asking somebody else for a favor, right? But remember that actually, your help you could be helping them too. I get asked to do informational interviews about you know the work that I do. And yes, I'm helping that person by telling them about you know, what, I, how, what my job is like and how I got it, but I, they're also helping me because I'm learning about a smart, talented person who, who you know, in two months or two years or, or maybe tomorrow, somebody says, hey, I'm looking for something or looking. You're, you are valuable. Um, as Sarah just said. So remember that you're bringing something. I'm learning about you at the very least, but it's also, you might be able to recommend something to me that I haven't heard about. You know things that I don't. Even even if it looks like, and I'm saying that as if you're interviewing me, but like the person you're interviewing knows things, you know things that they don't. So remember that. It, it's actually much, it's less of a hierarchical uh, interaction than I think we make it out to be. Go
7: ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Shelby and I have no institution on my name badge just says my name because I'm not yet a graduate student I'm just a theology nerd who's here for fun (laughs) and so my question is probably appropriately we've heard so far a lot about people who are in the process and then pivoting and, and teaching themselves to remove some sort of stigma that has been placed on them as they're in the process and, and this idea of, I'm in it now, I, I can pivot my, my imagination. Well, I what would you maybe say to someone who's from the outside and not yet starting the process and already excited about the idea of about an applied religious studies career? I'm, I'm so excited that this is on uh, so much of the program booklet because this has put words to something I didn't know had words. And as someone who has had uh, experience in both the higher ed space and also the tech space. I'm also from Denver. There's a a lot of big tech presence here and it's all about innovation and entrepreneurial mindset and how can we make things new and different. Um, And I've I've always known that I've wanted to continue my study within religious studies because I have deep personal questions and I find them very relevant to the world outside of the academy. Not that that's not an option, but my question I suppose is how might your advice or counsel differ? And maybe it doesn't, but to someone who's not yet in the process and, and looking to hopefully continue my studies, but you know, with, the, with the mindset that I, I already might be interested in forming that experience toward the goal of something,
1: not necessarily within the academy. Hopefully that
7: question made sense,
1: yeah? Just go. Okay, That's my main advice, go and keep, as we've been talking about agency, keep the agency you have already, right? So, I don't know all of our ages, but the academy is changing, right? It's very slow. But there are more and more people coming into the academy as students who are already thinking differently about why they're there. I think some of what we're highlighting is, to your question is, so you may be here, and the people you're encountering in the academy may be somewhere else, and here's why so that you can see what's happening and not be derailed or um, disappointed, right? There are some great resources, and there are some, some old thinking that's, that won't serve you there. And if you know what that is, then you'll know how to navigate it. But keep going.
5: I'd use your time here to sound out where you might want to pursue your graduate study. You know, when you're talking to people, do you meet somebody who takes graduate students who you're like, I could I could I get that. They get me. Mm-hmm. I could work with them. Sure. Or you you meet some graduate students who seem really happy and the kind of people you want to be. Then f- what are they doing? How do they get there? Like use that use your time here to think about how you could use your agency to get where you want to be. See see it always as graduate school is something that you're doing for you, not you're you're not trying to form yourself into something else to serve graduate school Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and if I could I would also add consider funding any graduate program that you go into make sure it's paid for Um, and if it's not think really think about if you want to spend that money Um, you know my master's program was not covered Mm -hmm. and I paid out of pocket for that um, my PhD was covered, which was great, and then I got tuition remission, which was great. But if it were not paid for, I don't know if I would have done it. Because of the student loan debt that I ha- already had from undergrad, you know? And, and it's still, I'm gonna be paying loans for the rest of my life, and I've come to terms with that, and I'm totally fine. <laughs> but I would just, if you're, not, if you're not totally sure, just consider the funding um, at just as a practical sort of, Consideration um, for all of these questions.
3: Can I? I want to just build a little bit on that. It's so important that, um, first of all, some, so don't, I mean, my my advice that I give in general is don't go if you're not funded. But also, um, do understand that what the departments call full funding. Uh, the maximal funding package that they have for any graduate student may not be remotely adequate yeah. to cover your full living expenses, especially if it's in the Bay Area or New York City or something like that. And so, and they, the, the professors are not in the business of caring about that. They, yeah. they, they just don't. And I'm speaking as a former professor who used to hand out packages and they weren't enough. But that wasn't like it was like well that's our full funding package so congratulations yeah uh, and uh, the fact that you can't live on it is not my problem and so um, just uh, really to do uh, look at the at the amount you're getting per year the number of years that it's covered the cost of living in the area whether you have any dependents who are you know or health issues and um, and do educate yourself about grad- graduate school debt because um, I ended up doing a, a, a thing, a, a crowdsource uh, survey about three years ago, four years ago now, on PhD debt. And there were many, many people who came out of PhD programs with six figure, like 100, 200,000, 300, even $300,000 debt. And they were hu- in the humanities. So um, it's a serious matter. And I'm glad you're here. The fact <laughs> that you're here is really cool, yes. that you're asking these questions yes. now and not later.
4: Thank you all. It's been really refreshing to hear you all speak uh, in a way that I haven't really heard elsewhere. Uh, I'm a newly finished PhD, just like you, uh, three weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, and thank you. I'm standing in that blinding light right now. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I might still be in the tunnel, I don't know. <laughs> um, but so I'm on a one-year contract. You know, there was all that urgency to get a job. Um, and so now I'm in that position, but it's a one-year contract, and so I haven't, I'm, I have an interview to maybe renew and all these things, so there's always that urgency. But um, I actually, I heard you talking a lot about accounting. I left accounting as a CPA to come into religious studies for a very personal reason. And as I find myself coming out of this to teach and wondering like, Am I really, is this really where I want to be? Um, I'm, I'm struggling with, and I'm sure this is more a, a broader question of like, now that I have the PhD, I'm finding it sometimes as I'm reaching out to other opportunities. I don't know quite what to do with it on my resume and how it blends with this previous experience or or what even I guess what to do if you're looking outside of academia. How do you, what do, you know, people see the PhD and they're like, what the heck is that? You know, you should be doing something else or you get this feeling like you should be somewhere else. Um, I think that comes on my end and their end uh, in a way. So I'm wondering how you, I don't wanna say market that, but how you put that into the conversation and kind of um, work with talking to employers, potential employers about what you did, why you did it, and um, yeah, so th- that makes
0: sense. I think this is a great question, I'm so glad you asked it. Um, primarily because we've just I've had conversations at Temple about where do you put your education on your resume? Um, now that we're dealing with resumes and not CVs, um, where does your education go? So I would love to hear speaking to his question as well as that just very practical, where should the PhD go on your resume?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I wouldn't leave it off I'm not a career counselor so this is why I think that's why they're redi- why I'm having some reticence here yeah. <laughs> um, because I because I don't I don't give that kind of advice but I would say don't leave it off is what I've heard from actual career counselors yes. so I'm gonna repeat yes. that mm-hmm. um, but you you even though you're Questioning about what you're doing with your life going forward. You have things that interest you and things that compel you and reasons that you got the PhD. So remember that the cover letter is a story. So maybe focus more on the cover letter than the, than the resume. I mean, I hope somebody has thoughts about the resume, but um, the cover letter is your chance to tell your story. And your previous experience gives you certain skills, and your PhD gives you a certain, certain <coughs> something else. So argue for them why those together make you really unique and why you're good for that thing that you're applying for. Does that, yeah. I hope that is helpful.
1: Yeah, I think that, that takes, that's where the logic kind of comes in. I, mm-hmm. I think there's a, I haven't researched this, but I think there's a big myth around whether people want to hire people with advanced degrees. The myth part is how we're interpreting that. So as someone who's been the lead, leading a hiring committee or on a committee almost every year yeah. uh, for the last five to seven years at least, I'm looking for people who want that job, right? Who are excited, have a purpose, have the skill sets and want that job. So if you come in and have a doctorate and it's very clear like on your cover letter or the interview that you're really like bitter, that you're not in the academy and are a (laughs) professor, then like, yeah, no, I don't want you, right? Like if, if you're oriented to somewhere else and then you're like, oh, I just want this job to get by and I'm gonna leave, right? That's what you wanna avoid that, like don't apply for those jobs if you can. Avoid that, right? But if you can construct a narrative of how, like you said, all these skills come together for this job, right? That's really valuable. Alternatively, if there's someone who's trying to hire you who is intimidated and doesn't want to hire you because you have a PhD, you don't want to work for that person, right? Like they're not in a clear space about themselves and will probably not be a generous and kind supervisor. I, I, you know what,
3: though? I so first of all, I, I want to say. That I uh, I'm gonna come out and just say I think your education should go on the bottom of the CV, not the top. I mean resume, sorry, bottom of your resume. Mm-hmm. All that, but I think that there are I think there's tons of excellent resume advice out there, way more than for CVs. And so I think just you know really using your research skills, and you know investigating all of the blogs that talk about you know how to write a good resume and deciding which one speaks to you is your best bet. Um, but um, what was I gonna say? Oh, so but it's speaking to that. Um, so I've been on the interesting uh, position of hiring people with PhDs to do non-academic work, to do, you know, coaching. And, um, it's, and it's been a learning curve for me because I understand now that people with PhDs, even when they're trying to write cover letters and resumes for non-tenure track or academic jobs still keep pitching the same story that they were pitching for the academic job. So they'll write something like, you know, I had a Fulbright and I, um, the Japan Foundation fellowship, and I wrote my dissertation, and I have three articles, and I have another one forthcoming, and um, and it's like that's great, but that has nothing to do with the career coaching task that I, you know, that I'm trying, the job that I'm trying to fill, and I realize that people don't know how to reframe themselves for this other job, so it isn't so much that like so i'm afraid that if we just say the the employer is going to be like oh i don't like phd's they may be fine with phd's they just don't like what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> about your phd and that if you could reframe it in this other way more like what you were talking about that it would that they'd be like wow i get all this and i get a phd on top of it that's super cool so in some ways you have a little bit more agency in how in terms of how you frame it
2: um I will talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, Um, so I will plug my own session of (laughs) tomorrow at 1 o'clock also on this hallway somewhere, um, because we have a lot of those resources on Imagine PhD. Um, So it's a great place to look at a lot of different examples of resumes of people who have PhDs, uh, resumes and cover letters, um, just to get a sense, again, I think you have to figure out what works best for the story you're telling to get the very particular job that you're trying to get, right? There's also this myth, because a CV is just a CV, and you can send it to the 400 jobs you won't get, um, 400 tenure-track jobs you won't get. Um, a resume you cannot. Right? You need to write. You need to write a different resume for every job that you're trying to get, a different cover letter. Um, and so you have to figure out what that story is, what that narrative is. And again, I think this is a reason that humanities students um, in particular can be so good at this, right? Because we are, um, so many of us, um, scholars of narrative and thinking about how we create different kinds of narratives. Um, so you have to figure out what your story is. But Imagine PhD is really useful insofar as we have a lot of different examples of these materials that are specifically created the PhD experience in mind um, for you to just get a sense of different potential options to create your own. And I would also just add, um, learn the
0: language of the job you're applying for, which Imagine PhD is very good at helping you do. Um, by looking at hundreds of job descriptions or in that field, you learn the language, you, you learn those keywords that you should, yeah. you should then use in a resume or a cover letter. So I would just add that.
8: Hi, my name is Brian. Thank you all so much. This is a really great uh, session today. Um, I'm in my sixth year of teaching full time at a Quaker boarding school, a secondary school, in a religion department of four. Um, And I get to teach uh, religion and sexuality, liberation theology, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. It's uh, fabulous. It's wonderful. And I feel like I have this little secret that I want to share with the world, that if you can get that uh, ego identity stuff out of the way, uh, secondary school teaching um, can be a really great way to take what we've been trained in and and my students you know um, are really bright and accessible so the National Association of Independent Schools has a job board Um, and so um, and it might be that we have to push our way in right Um, that these schools don't always know that they need religious studies um, scholars uh, on their faculty Um, so maybe clamoring on some doors Um, and my sister uh, is trained as an anthropologist um, in African studies but she's a PhD student um, at London School of Economics Um, and just being in a different kind of community um, doing development work rather than uh, cultural studies work where she's trained has opened up so many doors and has been really um, wonderful for her Um, my question for the panel though is I've been really um, inspired by I've only uh, recently discovered it in the past few months this fire movement do folks know what this is it's like a community of Millennials online that are all trying to retire by like their mid 50s or (laughs) end of their 40s or something and so they're like living communally they're not driving their cars they're just funneling their money away and um, what they brag about is how their quality of life is so much slower, like the slow food movement. They're able to spend more time with their families. Um, many of us who are doing these long commutes or you know, contingent faculty piecing it together uh, don't get to spend time with our families. And we're losing sleep. And we're um, really stressed out. And so I, I wanted to hear if there were some kind of rubrics that maybe you all have come across, or that you've used for yourselves. That if you do have that small business on the side, and you know you're trying to be in the market, and just stitching so many things together, that mm-hmm. you kind of say this isn't worth it. That, that I gotta cut that out. What, where, how do we make that discernment? You know,
2: it's a really difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: I have well, this isn't. Speaking directly, I don't know if this is speaking directly or not, but but this is what popped in my mind. Um, I when I was a department head and I was utterly miserable and I was crying all the time um, at the University of Illinois and um, just I would cry in the car to school. I would cry in the car home from school. I mean I was a mess. And um, and, and at one point, I, I had two small children at home and um, and it was the day before Valentine's Day. And um, and I remembered the night before Valentine's Day that we had this family tradition that my kids would get this special home- little homemade Valentine on the morning when they woke up with their breakfast, and it was like nine o'clock, and I had not made them, and I'd completely forgotten, and I was like, God damn it, I have to make these fucking valentines, <laughs> and um, and I was so and I was so unhappy about it, and I got out my little craft kit because I'm very crafty and I started making the Valentines. And as I made with my glitter and my doilies and all of that, as I did this, like all, I felt physically, all my stress, I I lost track of time, actually. That was, more than anything else, that's what was stunning. I lost track of time. And And I felt happy and I was humming. And then I had, the word you guys use quite a bit is discernment, is that like a religious studies thing?
8: Yes. <laughs> um, it's really
3: fascinating, I've literally never heard that word before at an academic conference. But anyway, um, the, the discernment to observe that I, um, that, I, that I was suddenly better, and that the crafting had made me better, and that I remembered that I loved this, and that was what launched me, that launched me. I started doing crafting, I started, I had this whole other life as a crafter with Japanese paper, Japanese paper crafting, and I started making, doing Japanese paper crafting, which I'd already been trained in for a lot of years, just as a hobby, and started selling it online at an Etsy shop, and that was my first business. And I did that while I was department head, and it didn't make a ton of money, but it, it's what launched me forward into this whole thing I do now. And and so in a way, it's a little bit like, um, Attending to what gives you life, and also uh, Martha Beck is a life coach. I don't know if you know her. She's interesting, um, and she one of her things she talks about is what makes you lose track of time, and and that's a great clue to something that is life-giving to you as opposed to life-sucking. And it's like, you know, and uh, and so I that I absolutely had that experience myself, and so that I would just say attend to that. You know, you're you're constantly telling yourself what is true your body is telling you, you just have to be able to listen. And we're trained not to listen. As the PhD takes that discernment
1: right, right out of us. And so we have to get it back in. Would, so this is an area that I taught in a lot with stressed out grad students. In the last quarter that I was teaching in higher ed, it was a particularly difficult quarter for the classroom and for me for different reasons. And I realized, you know, when we're stressed out, we're not learning. So there's no point in leading a class for three hours when no one is getting anything out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So we started every class with um, a different student and myself rotated, presenting to the class in an embodied way, meaning you had to do it, some kind of self-care, spiritual care practice. And I'd encourage you to do that in your own ways with your colleagues, but to talk about those things. And I get that, especially in studying Uh, religious studies that it pushes against uh, and shuts out sometimes, depending on your context, your own faith or spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage you strongly to not let go of that. You can think objectively. You can reason and critically think and also be a person of faith and have a spiritual life and rely on that in those communities that you're a part of. Um, Another piece is I'm a very type A person. And so I was used to, in my life, often achieving things, right? Goals (laughs) and getting accolades, right? That's a lot of ego. So I've had several really difficult times in my life uh, where I was not achieving things. And those are actually the moments where I felt the most care. And I think sometimes we're afraid of, and I'm saying this to your point of the job, so how do you balance it all? And I'm like, don't, right? Do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And if you don't have a job lined up right after you graduate, that's okay. The earth is not gonna stop rotating. People will still love you. And they'll actually come out of the woodwork to support you um, if you share that. If you hold on to that hurt and shame quietly, no one will know to help and then you'll spiral into depression probably because you'll feel very isolated and that no one cares. You've gotta share that with other people and ask for their help, but people are around you that care about you regardless of where you are. Um, So lean on people when you need that and be honest with yourself about what you're doing and do the spiritual and self-care exercise. Art is another, that for me is a place. Um, When I had a very difficult uh, professional moment, I spent like days in our backyard, which is clay in Denver, your sand or clay. Clay is like the stuff that doesn't come off of anything. It just keeps clumping on. And we have all these river rocks embedded in our backyard all over the place from the previous owners, and we were trying to make this little area with river rocks for painting, actually. And so I sat in the dirt, and I picked river rocks out of the clay and, Hmm. like, wiped the clay off. Right? My husband was very supportive. He didn't say, I'm worried about you. (laughs) Right? He knew that I needed that space as a meditation space to process, to not have to think, to not have to perform, to not have to be... Public and in front of other people, to just to be. And so, do what you need to do to take care of yourselves. Um, you have a lot of gifts to share with the world, and if you don't take care of yourselves, uh, you can't do that. And it's just not worth it. Um, I always find it helpful to think backwards uh, in terms of, in forwards, right? So, if I'm having a difficult point to just think, all right, in two to three years, how big of a deal is this really gonna be? Hmm. The chances are that most of the things that we overly stress about that we don't need to stress as much about are not, they're insignificant in the longer term. So if you can get a sense of place in time, in history, to, to just get some distance, that's helpful. And the other thing is um, get, get a counselor, get a spiritual director. Uh, when you, I've been a graduate student that didn't have money even though I was working full-time job because I also had loans from a private university. I went to NYU for undergrad and no clue about financial aid. And they didn't have a lot of scholarships then. So I didn't have a lot of expendable income, but it got to a point where I knew that that was an investment in my future, in my sanity, in my well-being, and that nothing that I was doing or spending money on or saving money for or paying down debt would matter if I wasn't there, right, in a healthy place at the end of it. So I encourage you, and a lot of universities have discounted counseling. Find the right one. It's like dating. Sometimes they're not a good fit, it's okay. (laughs) But find the resource, slow down.
2: Um, I would just add. one of the pieces that in the development of um, Imagine PhD we um, focus a lot on values, and um, it was a really really important. It's a common sort of career to, career exploration self assessment piece, right? Values, um, and the it was included on the biomedical one that we use as, as a as a model, and um, but it was it wasn't particularly robust. And um, when we started developing this tool, I you know the thing I knew was that a tool that was going to be about exploration and planning for humanists had to emphasize the values piece and I fought for it right I just sort of said there this has to be central to this tool because one of the things that's the hardest to give up or that feels like is going to be the hardest to give up is this notion that if I leave the Academy right I'm abandoning everything I stand for um, and so we really spent a lot of time thinking about how to make sure that this values assessment is um, Really helpful. So it obviously is focused much more on a professional, your professional values, um, but in f- you know your professional values cannot be separated from your personal values, um, and I think that. Um, it's a really useful it's a really useful tool it's not a rubric but it can certainly um, it can certainly be helpful in terms of really trying to take some time to ask yourself some questions about what what's very important Um, and the great thing about that we did with it that I think is a little bit rubric like um, is you go through and you answer sort of 40 scenario questions about what your values are and it gives you Um, An overall picture of what's most important to what's least important and then it says okay, so here here are a broad spectrum of your values Now pick five because you're never going to find a situation that meets all of the criteria of what's most important to you And so I think figuring out what to prioritize what's most important What what do you have to make sure is part of your life so that you don't so that you continue to feel that you are yourself right um, and I think sometimes that's a really difficult shift to make and to sort of say, I'm not going to be able to find a job that meets every requirement I have, I'm not going to find a city to live in that is going to be perfect, um, but these are, the, these are the deal breakers, right? And really being honest with yourself about what those deal breakers are and then figuring out how to make choices um, in sort of as a result of those.
0: Thank you. So I think um, now we've sort of run out of time, but everyone up here has business cards. So feel free to stop by um, and please join me in thanking our panelists for this great conversation.